Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Leighton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us. Thanks so much, and enjoy Late Night with Brian Wecht. It's my Don Pardo impression. I was just thinking, too yesterday because my internet is pretty bad right where I am right now. But I think the worst internet I've ever had anywhere was in London by quite a long shot. Yeah, I am totally unsurprised, right? So I live in a, a house that's like 200 years old in uh, in Bristol. Oh my God. And um, some of the walls are like two feet thick and just made out of stone. So yep. trying to get a Wi-Fi signal anywhere other than precisely where the router is is a nightmare. Yep. Lived here for like two years now. And I think I've just figured it out. <laughs> just about. And yeah, like starting a pandemic where everybody goes into lockdown and you pivot to teaching everything online and your face just freezes in the most awkward way possible during a lecture. <laughs> it was character building. <laughs> That's certainly the word for it. The constant day in, day out of like, all right, magical internet. I need you to do this so I can make money and live uh, and not embarrass myself in front of my peers. Please, God. It just magically turns off sometimes. Yes. You're just sitting there and, and nothing happens. We went through a phase where if the doorbell rang, that cut the Wi-Fi out. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't get it. I had to buy a high-tech doorbell to stop the doorbell from ruining the Wi-Fi. So now I've got <laughs> one of those doorbells where when somebody rings it, you can spy on them. I don't care. I don't want to do that. Yeah. That feels like something from a sitcom. Yeah. The Every time the doorbell rings, the Wi-Fi shuts off. <laughs> there was this one day where, for some reason, there was like a confluence of deliveries being made. And I was in this like really important meeting. I say it was an important meeting. It wasn't because there's no such thing as an important meeting. But I like to think I was in this important meeting. <laughs> and um, uh -huh. every 10 minutes, we went through the cycle of doorbell rings, internet cuts out. It takes me 20 minutes to reset, get in, doorbell rings. So now I've got this doorbell where I can see people, but because the Wi-Fi is still bad, when it rings, you tap to respond. It takes about 45 seconds for it to respond. And then you're trying to have this conversation on your phone with somebody who's not at the door anymore because they've left and you know they're, they're living their life. And, uh, and you're just there staring at, at the phone. <laughs> Having a collection of cryptid photos of the poor internet trying to send images of the people at your door. is like, oh, did Bigfoot come by to drop off some jury summons? It records automatically. And the weirdest one was I turned off the notifications because I don't want to answer the door. And um, I was going through the notifications of an evening, as you do when there's nothing better to do. And there was a photo that was taken of me leaving the house. And I didn't leave the house that day. So... <laughs> What the hell was going on? I, I have no idea. What? Yeah, I, I know, right? Yeah. Uh -oh. It sent you a picture, like, quote unquote, real time, of you walking out the door. No, no. So it recorded it at some point during the day and then just saved it. And then I was looking back at it later in the evening. And I was like, I didn't leave the house at three o'clock. What's going on there? 
So I don't know whether it was like predicting the future or or what, but... And you still don't know what happened. It's still a mystery. No, you'd think as an academic that I'd really want to find out the answer to that, but 10 o'clock in the evening that night, I just didn't care. Oh, dude, as an academic, I would think your plate is so full with other random bullshit you already have to do that you're like, well, you know, whatever, it's fine. I'll just <laughs> wait on this. That's honestly the academic response. So I made professor back in September. Oh, congratulations. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, everybody says that. And then you tell them what it's like being a professor. <laughs> it's like this massive life goal. You know, I always, always wanted to be a professor when I was doing my PhD and stuff. Yeah. You get there and it's just nothing but emails and meetings. Yep. It's literally all it is. Well, so I think we should explain to Leighton and maybe our listeners what made professor means in the context of a UK university. Please, yeah. So we have lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, and professor as the levels that you can get through in the UK academia. And I guess they sort of loosely translate to assistant professor, associate professor, and then full tenured professor, I guess. Is that right? Roughly speaking, my understanding was when I was a lecturer, that position was a permanent position, which uh, basically every assistant professor at a U.S. university wouldn't be. Right. So in the US, you have this like usually seven year nightmare of a tenure process, which then once you get past that, then you're an associate professor. So for a lot of lecturers, and correct me if this is wrong, Pete, in the UK, you get the job and it is essentially a permanent faculty position. And then it's a matter of moving up these titles as you go on. Is that right, Pete? Yeah. So you can get a lectureship like the entry level. That can be permanent. Increasingly, they're not, though. Oh, yeah. It's kind of what is happening in the U.S. with adjunct instructors. It really sucks. I was lucky when I was at Queen Mary to get a, a permanent lectureship there, but you could already see a lot of those positions across the board in the U.K. moving towards the non-permanent thing, and it's such a bummer. This is beyond my realm, but seems intensely stressful. Well, okay. I don't know exactly how the non-permanent lectureship positions go, but at least in the U.S. with these adjunct positions, they're often not full-time positions. The increasing adjunctification is the word I'd use here. What's the analogous word where you are, Pete? Well, we have things like zero-hours contracts and fixed-term contracts. Yes, that's what it is. So stuff like that, which is all yeah, yeah. garbage that loads of people are trying to fight against at the minute. Yeah. Do people have the thing where they hold positions at multiple universities just to make ends meet? Yeah, you can do that. And some people work absolutely insane hours. And a lot of it is just like absolute grind stuff, like marking yes. and teaching prep and stuff like that. And it's just absolutely soul-destroying. I mean, like academia is broken, right? There's so many ways in which it doesn't work and does the wrong thing. And this is one facet of how it screws people over. Yeah. It seems like the UK is moving in this way that the US has been for a long time, where Universities are getting very commercialized and they're kind of turning into businesses in a way that is very, very upsetting to all of the faculty. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of that business speak creep that's come in over the past few years where students aren't students anymore, they're customers. Oh, Love that capitalism, just capitalism doing great. It's bitten the universities in the arse over the past year, though, because 
with shifting to everything online, there's been this massive discussion in the UK. Don't know if it's been the same in the US, but you know, students are rightly annoyed that they're paying like £9,000 a year in tuition fees to be at university, but they're no longer at university. They're all online. Right. And it's a really difficult conversation to have because in one way you're saying you agree with them, right? 9K tuition fees are crazy and they should never have been introduced. But at the same time, that's how universities keep running. So while we would love to ditch tuition fees, if we do it immediately, bye-bye universities. So trying to find the right balance between kind of managing student expectations around what an online degree looks like and not going under is not easy. That is 100% something that's happening in the U.S. because, you know, in the U.S., there's so many private universities here. You know, some of these are charging like fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year for tuition, which is just bonkers, but... If they don't have students on campus, they can't make ends meet. And a lot of them don't have the endowment. I don't even know if that's a concept that UK universities have, but, you know, it's their financial holdings that they're making money from. A lot of them don't have the cushion to keep running. A lot of universities were bringing students back stupidly early just because they couldn't continue functioning financially if they didn't. It was a total no-win situation. Yeah, I think something similar happened in the UK. There are some private universities, but most universities that you come across will be in the same sort of situation. So they get kind of funded largely from tuition fees and a few other places in terms of research money and things like that. But it felt like the same thing was happening around about September, October last year where there was this real push to make sure that there was some form of in-person teaching because that was seen as more valuable in some way. Mm-hmm. And you know everybody tried doing different things and some of the solutions were just ridiculous. And it didn't work, right? So we, certainly at like Christmas, we went into lockdown again. But even before then, it just it's clear that it wasn't working and students were getting scared about whether they were going to catch coronavirus or not. So they ended up moving themselves online anyway. Sure. In a way, you can't blame universities. Like everybody was trying to figure out the best way to get through this, right? But yeah, it is a mess. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is anyone in London, like students are crammed into flats together just because otherwise they can't afford it. And so even their living conditions are fucking little disease pools and great ways of catching COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. And there were loads of stories in the news in the kind of run up to us or second lockdown our second wave where halls of residence were basically being locked down and students were being kept in there and it was almost like being in prison. Oh, yeah. It was a famous thing in Manchester, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Manchester was the one that kind of got the brunt of it and became the most famous example of it. <laughs> you kind of, I was going to say, you, you look back on this and you think, well, what were people thinking? But at the time, everybody was going, what are you thinking? Why, this is not a prison. Right. You can't do this. You can't just keep them in. What are you doing? They're all going to catch this. Yeah. If only you had somebody in the university who was good at understanding disease and modeling, where can we find those people? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you guys been able to hear the man that has been howling outside of my apartment uh, since <laughs> six this morning? No. <laughs> no. What's going on? I can hear him. Let's see. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Be real quiet for a second. I thought I heard something. Anyway, no, he's just been howling. I can't make out words, but like I went out there for a while, you know, with my coffee earlier and I was just watching him just sitting there screaming. (laughs) Doesn't seem to be injured. Just having a nice little Wednesday morning scream. Yeah, it's Los Angeles. Well, it's raining today too. So this is the unusual thing here, Pete, is that in the rainiest of rainy years, it's maybe two to three weeks of rainy days total. Right now is one of them. The most rain I had seen since I moved here was this time last year. Yeah. Because today, I think, is my 
COVID lockdown anniversary. Mm-hmm. It was so cold and so rainy. It just felt so appropriate and depressing. And it yeah. once again feels appropriate and depressing. But now when it starts to rain, my fucking bones hurt, which is <laughs> a, a scam by barometric pressure. Fuck you. I feel like this is nice because you're kind of easing me into everything because you're basically talking to a Brit about the weather. Right. A hundred percent. It's one of our favorite topics. So <laughs> it was on my list of things to talk about tonight, actually. So panic stations, <laughs> how can I make myself sound interesting? I know. I'll talk about the weather. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? Even though it's earlier than we usually do it, I think we should introduce ourselves now. So Layton. Hi, this is me. This is my voice. The person who just spoke, that is Brian. Hi. And this is a podcast called Late Night with Brian Wecht. Mm-hmm. And we're being we're uh, doing a professionalism for once. So uh, <laughs> I love that introduction, Leighton. I loved everything about it. The lack of detail, the reluctance, uh, <laughs> the fact that you cut out for me slightly halfway through. It was the perfect introduction for this show. All right, mystery guest, who is most assuredly far more professional than either Brian and I will ever be in our lives. Care to introduce yourself? You say that, but every time somebody asks me to introduce myself, I forget my name. (laughs) Valid. I'm Pete Etchells. I'm a professor of psychology and science communication, and I do research on video games. Hell yeah. Yeah. Pete has a great, great book called Lost in a Good Game that he was nice enough to send me an advanced copy of. And it's the kind of thing that I don't see a lot of, honestly, reliable books on. And it's part, tell me if I'm mischaracterizing this, Pete, part memoir, part science communication book, it's video games, mental health, stuff that's interesting to me and also to a lot of our listeners. I learned a lot from this book and it was just a great, very compelling read about your story too. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, that is what it is. Part of writing it was trying to figure out how to write about video games. But I think what I ended up doing was writing about video games in the same way that a lot of people write about them. You can't really talk about video games at length unless you start talking about your own experience with them. It was trying to be a bit of a travel diary as well. There was a subtext to it Mm -hmm. that nobody has ever picked up on or commented on, which I assume they just all missed it all, which was that it was a little bit of a like a travel diary of me going to different places and interviewing games developers and academics who do research on this sort of stuff, but then traveling in video games as well and like trying to trying to mirror the two. And it clearly worked because nobody spotted that ever. <laughs> <laughs> no, but now that you say it, in retrospect, I can absolutely see that. And a lot of the book is you just talking to really interesting people in a variety of different places. It's obvious in retrospect is what I'm saying, but I know I didn't think about it at the time. I got a trip to LA out of it as well. So I came to LA to do some interviews and stuff two years ago in the before times. Hey, who did you uh, end up interviewing here? Uh, Jeff Kaplan at Blizzard. Ah, okay. Who's the Overwatch lead and John Hype and Matt Goss, who uh, leads on World of Warcraft. So I got to go to Blizzard Campus, which is... Mm. Oh, wonderful. ...is like my Disneyland. (laughs) It's so cool. Have you been? I have, actually. Yeah, the one in Irvine, right? Yeah. Did you go to the library? I did. There's the coolest library in the world. It looks like a proper dungeon. They've got a dungeon door. Yep. And you go in and there's like three sections. There's a section which is pretty much every video game that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. Section on board games. Oh, no, four sections. This is like the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) A comic book section and a computer development textbook section, which I guess nobody ever goes to, because why would you when there's a board game section in a library? Yeah, it was awesome. We we had a couple, I forget what the connection was, but it was through Game Grumps, a couple 
fans slash friends who got in touch and they said, anytime you guys want to come down, like we'll give you a tour. <laughs> like a bunch of us were like, yes, of course, now please. And it was great. I played, you know, original Diablo when it came out. And I've never been a Warcraft person. I just haven't ever started. But there were so many Blizzard titles that I just thought were amazing. Yeah, I didn't plan on being a Warcraft player either. <laughs> uh, I think it's something that I talk about in the book. I was at a conference. I was in Lausanne in Switzerland, and I had a free afternoon. And usually what you do at academic conferences in the before times is that you, you go out and see the sites and see this wonderful new place that you've never been to before. Yep. Or, like me, you have a freak out and panic and stay in your room and play video games. <laughs> oh, hey. Yeah. And I didn't have any video games with me. So I was like, I'm kind of bored. I need to play something. Warcraft. I hear the kids enjoy that nowadays. Let's try that. And that was 10 years ago and I've not stopped playing. Yeah. That sounds like a very appropriate origin story. And also, I think, very heavily relate to the like, ah, yes, I'm in a new place. I'm going to stay in this box of a room and panic and ignore being in a cool place. It's just mandatory. I have a very clear memory also of freaking out in Switzerland. <laughs> Maybe it's Switzerland. It might be, yeah. My story, let's see, this would have been January in 2007. And there's uh, CERN in Geneva has a, a winter school in particle physics that they do every year. And I got invited to give some lectures on a thing I was working on at the time. It was non-geometric compactifications of string theory, which I will not define or even attempt to <laughs> summarize. Thank you. Some physics thing. So in between getting this invitation, because you know they plan these things fucking forever in advance, in between getting the invitation and the school happening, my mother died. And it was like one of those things where she had multiple myeloma and wasn't doing great. And the doctors, you know, they were like, Anywhere between when she was diagnosed, which had been a couple of years before, one to 10 years, like the prognosis for how long she had left to live. You never knew what was going to happen. Like, maybe it'd be fine, maybe it wouldn't. Who knows? Oh, that shit. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was terrible. Quality of life is generally pretty good, but things went suddenly south in about November, and she died. I was still a postdoc at the time. It was far enough after that we could get everything in order. My sister and I, like, we could deal with all the practical stuff. I had a cousin who lived near my mother, too, and she helped out a lot. And I was like, you know what? I, I got to do this conference because I was just starting out as a postdoc. It felt like everything was on the line, you know, that sort of thing, like make or break mm -hmm. my academic career. Yeah. Got to go give this talk. And they gave me some impossible mission. They said, okay, so the first thing we want you to do is in four one-hour lectures, we want you to summarize the previous 20 years of research and describe your own thing. <laughs> At a graduate student level. And everything in this is super fucking technical. It's string theory, right? So it's like, how far in advance do you begin? And also, I don't know if you feel this way, Pete. Whenever you're writing a paper, the review section where you have to understand and synthesize shit other people did is the worst part. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult for me because the past couple of papers that I've written, the sole intent of them was to completely take apart another paper that had been published. It was liberating in one way. <laughs> one of them was about May last year. We'd found a paper that looked at video game addiction in African gamers. And it turned out that the data were dodgy. And by dodgy, I mean that they were made up. Just wholly made up. Yeah, it was a really interesting story, actually. It started off by just the stats not making sense at all. 
there was just completely ludicrous numbers in there. And then we did a little bit of digging and there's like a few kind of nerdy tricks that you can do to figure out whether a number is actually possible or not based on some of the other numbers that they put in the tables and it turned out that they weren't. But you probably don't have much experience of this as a physicist because I think physicists have got this nailed in terms of data sharing and stuff. But psychology for the past 10 years has been kind of going through this big crisis around replication and being able to repeat famous results and yes turns out that a lot of what we thought we knew is not replicable or it just sort of falls down under really close scrutiny but kind of coming out of that has been a big drive to make everything open so do things like pre-register your studies so before you actually collect your data um say what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and analyze it which seems like a sensible thing to do before you actually start playing around with data yeah yeah but also things like making data available so other people can interrogate it and stuff. And it's quite hard to do that. So a lot of people don't like sharing the data. Nobody trusts anybody, right? So it's quite hard to get this data. One of my colleagues did in the end, but some of it was made available online. And it looked as though it was just cut and paste from each other. So you kind of go far enough down some of the values and then they start repeating themselves in the same order. So we wrote this paper uh, and submitted it and it got rejected pretty quickly. But the reason it got rejected was that they were going to retract that paper anyway. So it all worked out in the end. So that was kind of like an extreme version of an introduction section. Like, well, what you usually do is say, okay. here's all the stuff that's been done before. Here's why it's not so great. And this is why my thing is the best thing in the world. Yes. But our entire paper was that, basically. <laughs> so reading a single paper is often quite difficult. In my field of physics, if you really want to understand it, you're like checking the calculations and you're really getting into it. Like that can take right. days sometimes, if not weeks, to really get into it. I mean, shit, when I read my own papers from like a few years before, I was like, what was I doing? What? That was my brain doing that stuff. <laughs> and my brain didn't remember how my brain used to, you know, it's like the past is a foreign country kind of stuff where even putting yourself in your own shoes a few years ago is hard. Now put yourself in someone else's shoes where the papers they've read, their background is totally different. They might be thinking about things in a certain way. It should all be replicable. And in math, it certainly is, you know, it should just be follow the line, connect the dots kind of stuff. But still, there's a lot of like fucking background that goes into it. So summarizing one paper is difficult. Summarizing an entire field of literature is even more difficult. And then doing so in a digestible way so that you're actually getting the point across is really, really hard. Yeah. And still having to do all that work to use in service of the argument that you're making, right? Yes. And in my case, because I was giving it as a lecture, not only did I need to summarize it, I also better be able to answer deep questions about it about work that was not my own, but that I was using as a foundational thing for my own. Not to mention that this particular lecture was at CERN, <laughs> the kind of mecca of particle physics, right, where the LHC was, it was not on yet. We actually took a tour of the tunnels before they turned it on. So they're about to turn on this thing. It's like one of the most influential places in particle physics. There's European particle physics royalty in the audience, including, you know, Nobel Prize winners and like, all the people that I wanted to impress. I didn't know I would later join, you know, the UK as a faculty member. So I basically am kind of auditioning for a potential faculty job somewhere in Europe at some point by being in front of these guys. It was just really, really terrifying. Plus, 
I'm coming off the recent death of a parent, and my father had died a couple years before, so this was my, you know, final remaining parent. And I just remember being stuck in this hotel room in Geneva, right across from the train station. Pro tip, the region right across from the train station is never the cool part of town. It's Geneva in January, it's cold, it's gray. I don't speak French, or German for that matter, but in Geneva, French is the more relevant thing. And I just remember being stuck in this room, losing my mind about, am I going to be able to give this lecture and not look like a complete fucking moron? And how did it go? (laughs) Well. Your career was ruined forever. You never worked in this town again. Okay, okay. Uh, So I I didn't even think about this when I started telling the story. So I gave this first lecture. First lecture was all background. Second through fourth lectures were all like my stuff. So I gave this first lecture. People definitely asked questions I didn't feel comfortable answering. So I didn't feel great about it. Uh, And one of the organizers came up to me afterwards and they were like, you can slow down if you want. Uh, Because apparently I was just like racing to get through this stuff. And I was like, oh, oh God. You know, I, I did the rest of the lectures and I survived, which was the relevant thing. But the thing that I forgot until literally right now was several years later, I think after I moved to England, so 2012 or 13, a guy who was a postdoc then or a or young faculty member, I can't remember, came up to me and he was like, oh, dude, we met once before. I was at your lectures in Geneva and I remember coming up and talking to you afterwards. And I was like, oh, God. Like, <laughs> uh, and I basically said, I'm sorry if those lectures were terrible. And he said, those are some of the best lectures I ever saw. They were really inspiring. They stuck with me for years. That's awesome. Got him. Yeah, and it was one of those things where literally until this dude said it, I had been completely convinced that they were hot garbage to the extent where I was 100% convinced that if you asked anyone in that room, they'd be like, oh, that guy? Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Why did we have him? And it wasn't until this one person, just kind of offhanded comment, random thing, said something nice about it where I was like, maybe I should reevaluate <laughs> <laughs> that opinion of myself. Maybe I should speak faster again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I just go full like auctioneer speed. People will totally be able to follow it. Yeah, and that would be writing math at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I know a single person who does public speaking, myself included, who, you know, goes up and speaks and is like, I did a great job. I worked really hard on that. I think people liked it. It's always just like, I am shit. I will never work in this town again. I'm yeah. going to go hide in the bathroom. Nobody look at me or my shame. <laughs> And then everyone's like, it was great. Yeah. In an academic context, it's so hard. And I would imagine this is even harder in psychology, Pete. But in academics, you're getting asked these questions. You're an expert in the thing. You're expected to know the answer. In physics, there's a right or wrong answer, right? Yeah. It is a hard mathematical science. And sometimes people ask questions. You're like, okay, I know that. Sometimes you don't. And one thing that I think we all need to normalize in society, which I tried to normalize when giving talks, is saying, I don't know that, but let me try to figure it out. Because people can smell bullshitters in science. I worry that I take that too far, though. I think it's really important to do that. I'd say, there's a good question. I don't know, but let's find out together. But I think there comes a point in a, in a talk where I've been asked 15 questions and get to the 15th question. You're like, oh, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> no, yeah. Maybe it doesn't work as well. So it's finding that balance, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
it's harder in some ways in psychology because I think one thing that I find that I've always got to be careful about is not bullshitting the I don't know. Yes. So I think it's very easy with psychology to say, well, nobody's done that before or they have, but it's crap. Um, when that might not actually be the case. But nobody can quite tell because psychology is such a messy, noisy, fuzzy thing. It's hard. I've not quite figured out the balance yet. Yeah, this also has stuck with me forever. I had a math professor in college at Williams. This guy's name is Frank Morgan. Amazing, amazing teacher. A very, very good mathematician and also just a wonderful lecturer. And he was giving public speaking tips to the math majors. And I remember him saying, you know, if you're giving a t- <laughs> so crazy in retrospect. And this is also a guy who like knew everything about everything. Like really, really smart dude, knew a lot. I remember him giving the specific advice that if you're giving a talk and someone asks you a question you don't know the answer to, what you do is you look right at them. You stare at them for 20 to 30 seconds, look like you're thinking about it, and then just go right back to the lecture with the board. <laughs> and keep going without ever saying a word. Wow. Right? This was not like an alpha male type dude either. He's very enthusiastic, but he was not like an aggressive guy. He was just a very interesting and odd and all the best ways kind of dude. So he says this, and everybody's like, there is no fucking way that strategy worked. Are you kidding me? Like, if you did that, you would look like a maniac. (laughs) Sure enough, I don't know, at some point... I don't know how much later, a couple months, let's say. He was giving a talk on his research, and one of the other faculty members asked some question, Frank, blah, 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 blah. And he just fucking looks right at this dude. He looks right at him, doesn't say a word for like 30 seconds, and then turns around and goes right back to the board. And everyone's like, oh, shit. I guess that was a dumb question. (laughs) (laughs) It was so fun. I mean, I would never try to pull that. I feel like if I tried to pull that, people would be like, what are you doing, you monster? (laughs) It's kind of a ridiculous move, but I saw it work in practice. I think I just looked like I was trying to fart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm having a medical issue. Yeah. So, Pete, it seems psychology and video games you were passionate about. What kind of caused you going for, like, the union between the two? Alcohol. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it was all driven by alcohol, basically. So this is about 10 years ago. I was a postdoc in my department at Bristol, and we used to go to a local pub every Friday night. It was like the psychology pub, and it had this like cute little snug room at the front. It could just about fit in five people, so there were always about 30 people in there, like tin sardines. It was brilliant. I remember this one night. I don't know how I got to that point, but... I'd read this news story. The title of the news story sort of ingrained itself in my mind. It was uh, Computer Games Leave Kids with Dementia, quote-unquote dementia, warns top neurologist. (laughs) An infuriating title for two reasons. One is that there's no evidence to suggest that. There wasn't any then, there isn't any now, that if you play video games as a kid, you will become demented. And the second was that the top neurologist that was warning us about this wasn't a top neurologist. They weren't a neurologist. They were neuroscientists. They were different things. So nerdy annoyance (laughs) and evidence-based annoyance. So basically, I'd had a few drinks and I was ranting and raving about this and about how this was all crap and a moral panic and blah, blah, blah. And basically, what I think happened was that one of the professors in the department probably got a bit fed up with me talking about this sort of stuff. And he said, well, why don't you 
put your money where your mouth is, basically. Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you go away and do an experiment? And I'd never really thought about the fact that I could do something to do with video games as part of my day job as a psychologist. So it was kind of like a bit of an epiphany moment, really. And we did an experiment and it took about five years to do it and get my act together and and get it published finally. But we did a big study using longitudinal data where you track thousands and thousands of people over the course of their lives. And some of them play video games, some of them don't. Some of them do drugs, some of them don't. Some of them, I don't know, go out and set fire to cars. Some of them don't. And, you know, some of them go to school or whatever. (laughs) Most do. Most set fire to cars, yeah. (laughs) That's just England. It's just tradition. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what we do on a Saturday night. (laughs) Yeah, so what you do is you sort of, you let people live their lives and you bring them in and get them to do various sorts of surveys, say every six months or so. And using these longitudinal data sets, what you can do is try and look for associations. And the question we were interested in at the time was the age-old classic. It was whether violent video games make us all aggressive. So we could look at that by saying, okay, when these people were age eight or nine, what video games were they playing? And when they were age 16, were they aggressively violent? Were they diagnosed with something called conduct disorder, which is a clinical diagnosis that's characterized by things like setting fire to cars, being antisocial, ducking out of school, being violent with people. So the trick with, with longitudinal studies is that obviously all sorts of other things could impact on whether or not you develop conduct disorder at age 16. So it's not just what game you played when you were age eight. So you've got to try and account for as much of that stuff as possible. You're never going to do it fully, right? So the thing about longitudinal studies is when you see them in the news, they always claim that they've found an association between X and Y. And that's sort of scientists speak for saying, we found a correlation, but we can't say that X does cause Y, um, because it might be something else that causes both. Mm. So that's the kind of limit with longitudinal studies, but they are really powerful for looking at real-world effects. So the problem with violent video game history in terms of research is that a lot of this stuff's been done in the lab, and you can't test aggression very well in the lab because it becomes unethical very quickly. (laughs) Here's a hamster. What are you going to do? (laughs) Yeah, I tried to think about this once and I got this idea in my head, like a facetious example of what an actual violent video game study would look like in the lab. And it didn't go down well the first time I talked about it in a lecture. And I can't get it out of my head, so I talk about it every time now and it never goes down well. (laughs) It's along the lines of like smashing a hamster, right? But Oh, yes, please. These sorts of studies, a lot of them, when you read the introduction, they talk about things like Sandy Hook or Columbine. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of context where they set it in. And you know, that's an important question. It's an important societal question to say, are there some games out there or are there some people out there who, if they play a certain type of game, are at more risk of hurting themselves or others? You know, it's it's a reasonable question to ask and it'd be good to know the answer to that. If you try and test that in the lab, how do you do it in a controlled way? Well, you get a bunch of people You give half of them a quote-unquote violent game to play, the other half a non-violent game to play, and then you get them to do something else which tests levels of aggression. And if your hypothesis is that violent video games cause aggression, you might see more aggressive behavior in the violent game group than in the non-violent game group. So what does your aggression measure look like? Well, in the kind of societal context that we talk about these things, I guess the best that we could do is okay, right, you put a bunch of other people in a room with this person that you're testing and you give them a gun and your dependent variable, the thing that you're measuring is how many people are left alive by the end of a half hour stint in the room. Maybe turn the heat up mm-hmm. a little bit. 
So your hypothesis is that you're going to kill more people in a room with a gun if you've played a violent video game than if you haven't. Obviously, that's never going to happen because it's wildly unethical. But, you know, that's how you would answer that question, right? Because you're testing effectively gun violence behavior in a controlled setting. That never happens in these studies for obvious reasons. And this kind of goes to why it's like really hard to test aggression in the lab. So what can you do that kind of looks like aggression, but nobody's actually going to get hurt? And the best thing that Mm -hmm. psychologists were able to come up with is something called the competitive reaction time task. Um, The second best thing is called the hot sauce paradigm, which is much funner. (laughs) Anyway, the, the competitive reaction time task, basically what you do is you say, okay, get some people to play either a violent game or a non-violent game. And then once they've done that, you say, okay, we're going to play a different game now. I'm going to take you into a room um, on your own in front of a computer. And it's a reaction time task. So at some point, something's going to appear on the computer like a red dot. And there's somebody else somewhere else in the university who's sat in front of a computer and you're linked up to each other. And it's a game. So dot will appear for both of you at the same time. Whoever presses the space bar quicker first wins and they get to punish their opponent with a loud noise. So if you win, you've got faster reaction time, you can blast your opponent with a loud noise and you get to choose how loud the noise is and how long it lasts for. Mm -hmm. So that's your aggression measure. So obviously the other person doesn't exist. It's all controlled by a computer. So you can manipulate things like how often somebody wins or loses and what the the kind of pattern of win-loss is. But your aggression measure is basically, you're being more aggressive if you blast them with a louder noise for a longer period of time, which is aggression, but it's not Mm. the same as gun violence. Uh, It's not the same as actual physical aggression with somebody. So yeah, that's kind of the best we've got. And actually, it turns out it's not very good at all because you've got two different measures there. So you've got how loud the noise is and how long it lasts for. Which do you take? Do you take the mean loudness, the mean duration, the mean loudness times the mean duration? Some studies, they only take the data from the trials you won where you lost the previous trial because that's like retaliatory aggression. And some studies only take the data from the very first trial in the study, because that's the only time that you will have won having never lost. So you can call that unprovoked aggression. Mm-hmm. So there's like 100 different papers in this research area that use this thing in 100 different ways of analyzing the data. And there was a paper that came out a few years ago where they took three example data sets and they basically analyze all the different ways. So we're using all of these combinations of duration and loudness and everything in between. And they basically found that depending on which of those measures you use, you can find whatever you want. So you can find that violent video games definitely do cause aggression or they definitely don't, or we don't know. There's not good enough evidence, everything in between. And it's entirely down to the decision you make about how you analyze your data. It's nothing to do with the the signal in in the data itself. So that's kind of the best thing that we've got, really. How are people defining violent games? Like, is there a standard violent game you ask people to play, or is it, you know... (laughs) Yeah, so if you're talking about violent video games and aggression, we've talked about the problem with the quote-unquote aggression side of this. What is a violent video game? I don't know. You ask people this, and they'll they'll say something like Call of Duty, or World of Warcraft, or Fortnite, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But again, it's not particularly well-defined. There was a study that came out in 2001 where I think it was Harvard scientists tried to quantify the level of violence in games. Mm -hmm. And they did this thing like where they they played it for a certain amount of time or to completion, whichever came first, I think. And they had like, if this sort of thing happens, it counts as a violent 
thing. So we'll measure how long that takes in time. And then you can take a measure of percent violent game, basically. Mm-hmm. Centipede came out as the most violent game. Yeah, because you're just constantly firing, right? Yeah, yeah. Sort of the whole time, right? You're firing an 8-bit centipede and some mushrooms. So it's 92.6% violent. Donkey Kong was pretty high as well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it seems like Cuphead would be up there by that metric, right? You're just, all you do is you just lean on that gun button and, you know, a fucking cartoon flower gets mad at you. It's just like, nobody tell these people about the existence of whack-a-mole. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So I was talking about our study, the longitudinal study, and that was hard for us. Like, we were reliant on data that had already been collected. So we didn't really get a say in how you ask people about video games. But they just looked at it at genre level. So one of the big issues with with that paper is they didn't really have like a, a shooter category, a first person shooter category. The closest that they had was shoot 'em up. So I feel like, you know, the data for eight, nine year olds was collect, collect, collected around about 1998, 1999. So I always felt like, you know, if you were in that experiment and you were playing Goldeneye, then you'd probably select shoot 'em up. Yeah. But that's not what a shoot 'em up is. So and it, it, that that that's interesting because it kind of goes back to something that I talk about quite a lot in my book is that um, there's this weird thing amongst video games researchers that a lot of them are quite Puritan in the way that they talk about video games. So I got an anecdote from a, mm-hmm. a colleague in there who said, you know, he went to this conference once and somebody came up to me and said, you know, I do video games research, you know, but I don't play them as though it was some sort of like purity check. And it's the weirdest <laughs> thing in the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> You don't get like nutrition psychologists coming up to you saying, I do work on food and nutrition, but I don't eat anything. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, is the tide turning towards more gamers? I feel like everyone plays video games now. I literally don't know anyone that doesn't play video games except my mother-in-law. Yeah. She plays solitaire, so that probably counts, (laughs) you know, on her Mac. That's an interesting question in and of itself. So to answer your first question, yes, I think we've got a newer generation of scientists coming through at the minute who are uh, gamers. They've grown up with video games. And the really neat thing about that is that I think that they will start to ask more interesting, more nuanced questions about how video games have an impact on us. So we can move away from like 20 years ago when we were talking about whether video games generally are good or bad, or whether violent games make us aggressive, whatever that means. So actually thinking almost like in mechanistic terms. So trying to categorize and black box games is a completely fruitless task, right? So how do you define a game like Fortnite, for example? Yeah. Whereas if you think about mechanisms within games, that seems like a much more useful thing to do because... I sort of had this utopian vision of scientists working with video games developers and thinking about, okay, well, let's look at this specific mechanism or this specific type of quest, whatever it is. And does it impact people negatively or does it impact them positively? If it's negative, what happens to the game experience if we take it out almost as like a chunk of the game? Loot boxes, as an example. So, you know, if everybody thinks loot boxes are garbage and some people think they're problematic in terms of gambling addiction, you can take loot boxes out of games and still have a game. What's the experience like still? Does it practically change it or not? So people are starting to ask those sorts of questions now. And I think they're much more useful questions for understanding video game effects generally. The other thing that I was going to say was you talk about like who plays video games and who doesn't. 
you know, I do talks on my book and stuff quite a lot. And I always ask people in the audience, like, you know, who plays video games or who's a gamer? And depending on how you ask that question, you will get very different responses. So if you ask who's a gamer, not that many people will stick their hands uh-huh. up. If you ask who plays video games, more will stick their hands up, but still probably like less than half, depending on what the audience is, obviously. But if you start asking things like, you know, who plays Candy Crush, who plays, uh, I don't know, Pocket City, stuff like that, and then most people stick their hand up. So more people than we think play video games. They just don't call them that. Yeah, It's just gamer is a dirty word that nobody wants. I mean, I guess people do want to use it as a self-identifier. And I guess I frequently say on this podcast, ironically, that I am a card-carrying gamer, which is not the case. Gamers. Just gamers as a gender-neutral collective term for me. I just see a group of old women walking. I'm like, yep, there go the gamers. Yeah, I see this a lot on Twitter now, too. I started hearing this around the Game Grumps office, you know, three, four years ago. And then I feel like it really broke when Jacksepticeye started using it all the time. Mm. Uh, Hey, gamers. What's up, gamers? How's it going, gamers? Just as a generic greeting to anyone you meet. It's not in my personal vernacular, but it is for a lot of my friends. To get to your point, Pete, when you say gamer, it becomes like a question of self-identity, which is probably a higher bar for most people to clear. It's a really interesting one, though, because I think there's this sort of general perception of what a gamer is within communities of people who understand video games. And calling somebody a gamer, if you're outside of that community, you probably mean it in a different way. Mm. But even within that community, I think if you self-identify as a gamer, it feels as though you're part of this homogenous group, but it's not that at all. I think it really does mean different things to different people. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of animosity around I'm just being a video game player in general because there's been so much public hostility towards video games over the past 30 years or so. They've always been seen as this unwholesome counterculture niche thing to do and that there must be something not quite right with them. And why are you doing that when you could be doing something better like going outside and playing or learning to play the piano or something like that? And it's weird because I felt for a long time that that perception of video games was disappearing. I think it is to a certain extent, but you still come across it in a very strong sentiment sometimes. Yeah. So I still have conversations now with journalists and people from charities and things like that who are willing to sort of be open and talk about the power of video games and the positives with me. But they're still saying things like, why would somebody play a video game when they can go outside and play in the real world. You know, why would somebody play FIFA if they can go and kick a ball around outside? Because I want to play a video game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't want to go outside. I want to play a video game. (laughs) It's also a different skill. Like, you can be great at one and terrible at the other very, very easily in either direction. I'm sure most, you know, actual FIFA real-life players are probably not that great at the video game, right? It doesn't translate. It's just different stuff, right? One of my favorite examples of that So in the book, I talk about a friend of mine called Robbie, who was an amazing scientist. He was like the funniest guy in the world. He was super warm, super friendly, really good at what he did. He died when he was 34. He had a sort of rare form of cancer that progressed quite quickly. So he died a few years ago. So I talk about him in the book and talk about, because I used to play Halo with him quite a lot when he moved up to Edinburgh. And it was sort of our way of keeping in touch. But one video game related thing about him that I didn't talk about in the book is that he was a drummer in a band, a band called Leto, who were amazing. And he was a really good drummer as well. And I have this really vivid memory of him coming over to my place when he still lived in Bristol. And I just bought Rock Band. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> he got on the drums and he was shockingly bad. And he was really angry about the fact that he couldn't do it. He was like, oh, there must be something wrong with the latency, <laughs> the pants don't work, stuff like that. He just couldn't get it because playing the drums in rock band is not like playing actual drums. And then I got on and because I've been like, playing for ages and I'd learned how to play it, I kind of completely nailed it. <laughs> and it was like this really weird moment where I kind of got one up on him on something that I know in real life, you know, I could never even come close to being as outstanding a musician as he was. But yeah, it goes back to that idea of like, it, it's a completely different skill, right? It looks like this thing that we do out in the outside world, but it's not and it's different and it's special and it's important in its own way. Yeah. So psychology is such an interesting thing to me because, I mean, I'd say maybe only rivaled by nutrition is the public subject to so many bad, stupid takes constantly. <laughs> yes. Where it's just the media coverage is, and this is not to denounce all science communicators, quite far from it, but most of the coverage out there is from people who have no idea how to communicate science and have no idea what they're doing and just credulously take in any fucking press release they see. So I would imagine if I had the expertise you did, I would just be angry all the time and screaming at, <laughs> you know, news outlets, what are you fucking doing? Why would you say this? Did you not do even the most basic amount of due diligence or, you know, sniff test kind of stuff before you put this in, in front of people? Are you mad all the time? I am. <laughs> I am generally, I worry about my blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Actually, you say this, and I did this the other day on Twitter. It was like a 20-tweet thread, which everybody loves on Twitter, um, <laughs> about a paper that had just come out saying that four in 10 university students were addicted to their smartphones. And this was breathlessly reported in the media. Yeah, And you take five seconds to look at the paper and you go, no, this is not what it said at all. It doesn't make any sense what they've done. They used um, a smartphone addiction scale. We could talk for hours about what the problems are in like smartphone addiction and gaming addiction literature because that is a dumpster fire of a mess of research. But this paper, so they used this smartphone addiction scale. I think I had like 10 questions. And you answer each question on a scale from, I think it was one to six. So, you know, one being very unlikely or not like me at all, and six being very like me. You know? And the questions would be things like, yeah, I find it difficult to put my phone down and stuff like that. Yeah. But three on the scale was like, this is weakly related to me. So you put a three on a scale if you were like, nah, yeah, maybe, but not quite. So you basically get a score from between 10 and 60 on this at the end. So one thing you need to do with that scale is decide what number do you use as a cutoff to decide whether somebody's addicted to their phone or not. Mm -hmm. Be a number between 10 and 60. So they used a cutoff score of 30. So that basically means that if you answer every question saying, mm, it's not really like me, but could be maybe, then you're addicted to your phone. Yeah. And it's such an arbitrarily low score that A, I'm amazed that it wasn't higher than 40% of their sample that met that criteria. Yeah, who were they asking? They were asking London University students. Weird. <laughs> yeah, and then in the discussion they say, you know, I think they tested like a 1,000 KCL students or something like that. Kind of rolled this out to its university students that this affects. And there's just these like little things and you kind of feel like you're screaming into the wind sometimes and that you're sounding boring because you relentlessly say things like, well, it's a correlation and correlation doesn't mean causation. Well, the sample size wasn't big enough. Well, you know, they, they've used a small sample and then they've generalized it out to everybody and you can't really do that. And it's just the same things that crop up 
over and over again. And that's on top of the reporting possibly being just wrong and bad. Yeah. If you start misinterpreting it as well, then things are only going to get worse. And I think I'm quite a grump about this on Twitter. And I catch myself saying this thing that I'm angry about today represents a failure in science communication. I'm always a bit conscious of saying that because there are some really great science communicators out there. But I think as a whole, we're clearly doing something wrong. And I count myself in this, you know, I'm a professor of science communication. So, you know, clearly I'm to blame for this being a complete fuck up. But (laughs) I find myself having the same conversations about things now that I did like 10 years ago both in terms of how should we do science communication, but also in terms of these really boring conversations around, well, this is why you shouldn't have covered this paper in in the news, and this is what it actually says, that sort of thing. So, I don't know, we're doing something wrong, right? I love your Twitter, Pete. (laughs) I agree and I I disagree to some extent. Just to say what I was going to say first, I think your Twitter is great because it is the kind of skepticism that I really wish there was more of. And since I am not a psychologist and don't know too many, seeing someone with your level of expertise saying, look, no, here's why this is wrong, even if it's the same thing over and over and over, it's useful. And I think it is important. I remember you had something, you probably not just had one thing, but many things uh, about screen time, this moral panic type stuff over screen time, Mm. which I don't remember the thrust of it. But what I took away from it was, can we all just please calm the fuck down about screen time? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So let's get into that a little bit. Screens are not killing your kids. And I think more people have come to realize this over the past year when we've been in pandemic mode. Yeah, we've had to do a pretty good experiment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think we've all kind of been forced to confront our preconceptions around screens and video games because we've had to deal with them in the home, right? Yeah. I mean, screen time's a garbage term, right? It doesn't mean anything. What does it mean, basically? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to write a book on this at the minute, actually. um, Oh, nice. I wrote like a really boring thousand-word analogy the other day, whereas I'm just going to explain what I'm doing now. So what was my last hour of screen time? Well, it was writing a book on a screen. I've got an Apple Watch, though, so that counts as screen time. I get WhatsApp notifications on my phone, so that counts as screen time. Um, When you kind of try and capture that in a study, that counts as one hour of screen time, right? But Mm -hmm. so many different things happened in that hour. So if you try and break it down a little bit more, let's be honest, it was five minutes of me writing my book instead of an hour, 20 minutes of scrolling on Twitter. But even then, It wasn't 20 minutes on Twitter. It was five minutes talking to some colleagues about a new idea for a project. It was five minutes of doom scrolling. And then it was 10 minutes of getting angry about something and writing a thread or whatever. And then it was 30 seconds of watching a a cat gif or something. So (laughs) how do you narrow it down? Because probably if you take it in 30 second chunks, they're all going to affect me differently. So do you try and kind of amalgamate that over 20 minutes or an hour, it becomes really meaningless really quickly. So, you know, lots of people say this, but asking about what the effects of screens are on our behavior is kind of like asking what's the effect of food on our waistline, right? It's a very obviously a meaningless question to ask because the answer is it depends. What are you eating? How much of it are you eating? Are you doing exercise? Who are you eating it with? When are you eating it? All of those questions are important. Uh, And, and, they kind of supersede that very boring, what is the effect of X on Y question. But, you know, like with the video game stuff, we've not got past that with screens yet, right? 
We've had this with video games and violent video games and aggression. And then we've got it more recently with things like loot boxes and gaming addiction, gaming disorder. Now we've got it with screens. We'll have it increasingly more so as we move away from screen time to specifically social media, which is still meaningless really as a general category. Um, And then at some point, what will happen is that I will get old enough that a new form of technology will come into the fore that I don't really have any experience of. And that technology is definitely the one that's going to kill all the kids. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. I can practically hear the dumb fucking papers that are going to be written in about two years, maybe in a year, uh, that look back on the past year and come away with the conclusion that screen time is bad for children because they're failing at whatever educational metrics. And (laughs) I'm already mad about it. I'm already upset about it. Listen, folks, there's nothing else that happened during this past year. All you know is your child looked at a screen. Any yeah. other personal stressors, not a factor, no environmental or you know political, social, none of it. It's it's screen bad. We could show a very strong correlation tomorrow, right? So yeah, screen right. time in 2020 <laughs> went through the roof and kids stopped going to school. Yeah, right. Like they literally stopped going to their schools. So screen time's definitely bad, right? Um, <laughs> I'm going to get yeah. Mr. BuzzFeed on the horn. <laughs> Would you like to not pay me for a shitty article? <laughs> There's going to be so many, and there are already so many bad takes about COVID, but especially once we see what has happened to kids and where they fell behind educationally and blah, 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 blah. It, it, it feels like there's going to be some hardcore demonizing happening for pretty shitty reasons. Uh, Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I can see the headlines already. I hope so. It's the curse of having hot take future sight where you see a thing happen and immediately your brain rolls out the like, okay, so the first wave of takes is going to be like this. And then in response to that, the second wave of takes (laughs) is going to be like this. And we're going to get maybe like four levels deep before people just go straight for the intense name calling. But like just seeing a thing and instantly your brain rolling through like, all right, I know exactly how this is going to go down socially. And you just mentally invent a bunch of people to get mad at, which is fine. But then those people actually end up existing. And it's like, oh, fuck, I knew you. Dumb fucks, we're going to say this. God damn it. (laughs) Once again, everyone, please just shut the fuck up for a second. Like, you know, (laughs) just as a general thing. I think there are some psychologists that are really trying to fight against this, though. So there's a paper that it's either just come out or it's on the verge of coming out, but, you know, the preprint, the sort of draft version of effectively is, is out there for everybody to see, where they're basically arguing that in the social sciences, Everybody just needs to just stop for a second about putting COVID into everything because that's not actually a good thing for our understanding. Yeah, I think what's happened over the past year is that everybody's tried to pivot their research to be relevant in the pandemic, but they've done that largely just by inserting the word COVID somewhere into their research. And actually, that's not a particularly meaningful thing to do. You know, I think there are some researchers out there that are looking at things like the fear of COVID and 20 plus papers that have been published already on this idea of being afraid of catching coronavirus and what it means in all sorts of contexts. Yeah. So there's this paper that sort of argues we need to not do this because it's going to churn out a load of questionable science that's going to undermine public trust in social scientists and psychologists. There are important questions that we need to ask about COVID and our behaviour, but they're going to get lost in the noise because we're just panicking and trying to throw anything that will stick, really. So it's nice that that paper's out there, really, because it shows that people are thinking about this and they do care about it. Whether or not 
the vast majority of social scientists will listen to it. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, hopefully. I'm sure you get this question practically in every media appearance you do, Pete, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What are you playing these days? Not that much because I've got a two-year-old. Yeah. So my time is taken up with toddler duties most of the time, really. The Switch has been a savior for me over the past year, I think. Yeah, me too. So I was playing Animal Crossing quite a lot um, when it came out last year. More recently, I've been playing Two Point Hospital. So I tend not to play new games. I tend to play games that everybody was raving about a couple of years ago because I'm old and behind the times. Layton and I were just talking about this. Mm-hmm. Like yesterday. Yeah, like yesterday. We do exactly the same thing, yeah. So it's nice because you kind of, you get all the DLC stuff and you don't have to wait for it if it's a game that you really like. So yeah, I've been playing Two Point Hospital, but that feels as though it's sort of like a socially awkward game to play. I mean, I loved Theme Hospital when it first came out, so it was great to see that they basically come up with a spiritual successor. But, you know, when you've got a pandemic crisis coming into your hospital, it's like, ooh, we're not dealing with this well in real life. Can I deal with it in my fake little hospital? Probably not. I don't know this game at all. Yeah, neither do I. Did you play Theme Hospital? No. It's like a 1996 game. So it's like a management sim game. So you're like the manager of a hospital, right? And you you build it. So you get cash for curing patients and doing research and stuff. And that allows you to buy buy new things. Uh, but they're all like comedy illnesses. So pandemic is like people coming in with pans on their head. <laughs> So you build the hospital and you build the rooms in the hospital and you hire doctors and nurses and janitors and receptionists and things like that. It's of the same genre as like theme park. You know, it's a bit kind of Sims-esque in that way. It's really good fun. It seems like roller coaster tycoon with open heart surgery. Yeah, yeah. This looks cute. Have either of you ever played Life and Death? Either of the Life and Death games? I've not heard of that, no. I play Life and Death every day, Brian. (laughs) Life and Death, it's a game from the late 80s. And it had a sequel called Life and Death to the Brain. And it's literally a surgery sim. So This is sick as fuck. Whole, oh my God. The sheer aesthetic. I used to be obsessed with this game when I was 13 when it came out, 88. Played it on my Apple IIgs. And nice. you see a patient and they tell you what their symptoms are. And you have to basically diagnose them. And then if they need surgery, you take them into the OR and do surgery. On them. First one, I guess it says you're an abdominal surgeon, which I don't remember at all. But I do remember the second one being a neurosurgeon, and you got to do brain surgery on people on this video game. And I thought this was the greatest thing in the fucking world when I was, you know, 13. That does sound awesome, though. This looks tight. I'm surely like a big predecessor to one of those games, Trauma Center. Yeah. Yes. Very similar deal. Although the aesthetics on this are just absolutely impeccable. Oh, it's peak late 80s, like Amiga type bullshit. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Shall we do a segment? Yeah, which one do you want to do, Leighton? I think you should follow your heart, Brian, and you should do the segment that I know you deeply want to do. So, Okay, great. Well, our first segment, Pete, this is a pop culture recommendation segment. It's called What's Poppin', and here's the theme song. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right, we'll put that in in post. We didn't actually play it, but I'm sure you loved it. So, uh, Layton, what's popping? Um, sorry, I have peanut butter in my mouth. Uh, fun fact about the show, folks. 
is that <laughs> episode title. Sorry, I have butter in my mouth. <laughs> by the way, yeah. No, I, I was expecting a much larger lead-in time on that, so I was Why? like, "Oh, surely I have, I have a moment, <laughs> I have a moment to shove some peanut butter in my mouth." No, that's interesting. Why? I don't know what could have possibly led me to believe that you would have luxuriated in introducing a certain segment of this show. I'm just saying that a behind-the-scenes production tip for late night is that to get me to say anything on this show, they have to put peanut butter in my mouth so my mouth will move. <laughs> that's right. So it looks like she's actually talking. Yeah. Rest assured, I'm not. Um, <laughs> anyway, what what was the question? There's still peanut butter. Uh, what's popping? Do you want me to go so you can continue eating your peanut butter? I would actually love that. Please do that. Okay, great. There's good peanut butter. <laughs> this is a first for me. Uh, I'm going to recommend a genre of YouTube video that I've been very interested in recently. It is modern, and by modern, I mean written in the last hundred years classical piano music, like real discordant type shit, where you can follow along with the sheet music. And it's so great because you get to see these, you know, there's Ives and Boulez and a million composers. Anyone who wrote piano music is up there. And these scores are really complicated and cool. There's a bunch of channels doing them. It's just like a few bars of the sheet music and you can hear it and watch it. And the music looks very complicated and interesting. And you can hear someone play it while you read the music. It's just like following along with the score but it's kind of better because they just narrow it down to a few measures at a time. I was just listening to Pierre Boulez's second piano sonata, which is a real beast of a piece. And if you listen to it, it sounds like every stereotypical modern piano piece where it's like, blink, 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 you know, it's just, it sounds essentially random and it's definitely not, but it's a very complicated and interesting piece the theory of which I don't even begin to understand because you probably need to study it for a long time to appreciate it. But it's just a great genre of YouTube videos. I've been into them for a while, but the last week or so, I've been really just diving in, finding cool piano pieces I didn't know about and following along with the score. Do you have a good starter recommendation for anybody who would want to get into checking those out? Yeah, you can start with, there's a really lovely sonata by Charles Ives called the Concord Sonata. It's like a classic piece written turn of the 20th century about, probably. Uh, Ives is one of my all-time favorite composers, an absolute madman. Had the philosophy, which really worked out for him, where he was like, I want to write whatever I want to write, and if I try to be a full-time composer, no one will ever want to pay me for this. So I'm going to sell insurance and then just be a lifetime insurance salesman. That's what he did, and write whatever I want you know, when I feel like it. And... As a result, he wrote music, this is like end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, uh, that was so far ahead of its time that it's just ridiculous. Doing all this polytonal, atonal, really wild stuff. Um, he was a New Englander, and a lot of his pieces are homages to various places and events in New England. Absolutely wonderful composer who was taking crazy chances all the time and very, very influential to a lot of composers that came after him. So listen to Ives's Concord Sonata. Yeah, actually, just listen to everything by Charles Ives. So his fourth symphony is incredible. I think he won a Pulitzer for it, maybe. But yeah, I love Ives and the Concord Sonata piano music. It's a great YouTube video to watch. Lovely. Man, it's the kind of thing where I listen to it and I'm like, how does your brain think harmonically in those terms? It's it is a kind of thinking that is so next level, it's hard for me to see how to get there from where I am right now. Like I can listen to it and appreciate it, but it's a wild, 
out there piece done by just an absolute genius of a composer. All right, Pete, what's the problem with you? I have been watching my favorite movie quite a lot recently, which is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And I just try and recommend that movie whenever I possibly can, because it's the greatest movie ever made. Oh, yes. I love that film. It was just John Candy's birthday the other day, actually. His performance in that movie is one of my favorite things of all time. It's just incredible in so many ways. And there's so many good lines in it. And like so many kind of nice little anecdotes about it as well. So did you know that Elton John wrote a theme tune for it? Did he really? (laughs) Yeah. It never got released because Paramount wanted ownership of the song and his record label didn't agree with it. So it never got released. So there's this Elton John theme tune to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles that exists somewhere out there that nobody's ever heard. Oh my God. That's amazing. I love lost media. I was just watching a deleted scene from it where they're on the plane eating an airplane meal. Have you seen this one, Pete? No, I've not seen that, no. Yeah, so apparently the original cut was vastly longer than the final film. Actually, I can't even remember how much of it was film versus script, blah, blah, blah. But there's at least one full-on scene where they're on a plane and food gets served and they have to eat it. It's a fully intact scene that was just excised from the film. And you can look it up on YouTube. I bet if you search plane, trains, and automobiles, airplane food, it'll be there. It's great. So you know the bus ride where they're all like singing and stuff? Mm-hmm. And, um, and Neil, Steve Martin's character, starts singing Three Coins in a Fountain and it just completely kills the mood. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant. Apparently, that was Jerry Ryan's first role. So Seven and Nine from Star Trek Voyager. Really? She's on the bus? Yeah, she's on the bus, but they cut the scene and had to reshoot it because she kept laughing, uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. Uh, <laughs> she kept like ruining the scene, so they, they, oh they had to do the entire thing again and just cut her out of it. But it should have been her first acting role. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Wow. My other favorite anecdote from Planes, Trains is the last scene where, I won't spoil it if you've not seen it, but Neil, Steve Martin's character, leaves, he gets, he kind of makes it home and he's thinking about John Candy's character, Dell while he's on the train. Mm-hmm. And there's a big revelation at the end of it. So there's this really beautiful scene where he's on the train and he's kind of just thinking and it kind of cuts back to some of the previous scenes and he pieces this story together. Yeah. Apparently, Steve Martin didn't know the camera was on when that was happening. So that wasn't intentionally recorded. John Hughes would just carry on filming between takes. Hmm. And apparently, like, Steve Martin was just thinking about the next lines that he needed to say. <laughs> and they caught this on video, and John Hughes thought that it was, like, just such a nice, unguarded moment that they keep it in and use it for that scene. Wow. I love that. That's lovely. Yeah, I love that kind of thing. Yeah. I was also just listening to the Ray Charles song, Mess Around. Ah, such a good song. Literally yesterday. And that scene is incredible. That scene is amazing. They're in the car. John Candy is like pretending to play piano on the dashboard. It was an early Ray Charles hit too. And it's just, that song is just pure joy, start to finish. My six-year-old was dancing around the house to it. And I can't hear that song without thinking of that movie. That scene's got one of my favorite puns in the movie in it where they end up on the wrong side of the road and a couple sort of drive alongside them on the right side of the road and try and scream at them. And Dell winds his window down and hears them and they're going like, you're going the wrong way. And uh, he says to Neil, he says, they're going the wrong way. He says, we're going the wrong way. And Neil goes, that's stupid. How could they know which way we're going? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like this like super lame, proper dad joke. 
but in the context of that that moment it's just absolutely hilarious yeah uh, john hughes was so great at those it was r-rated as well that movie is it really yeah it was i don't think it is now but yeah it was r-rated at the time because of the car rental scene that's what i was going to say the language yeah there's 18 f-bombs i think in the car rental scene that is Edie McClurg's yeah. Your Fuck There is maybe one of the best fucks in movie history. <laughs> yeah. We really do need to get a definitive ranking of the best fucks in movie history. You know what? Next time, Layton, we're going to do an episode. We'll rank some fucks. I think the top 10 is literally just going to be John Malkovich and Philip Seymour Hoffman just back to back. Layton, what's popping? What's popping for me is an episode of a podcast that I don't listen to and probably will never listen to, but a friend recommended it very highly. It's a podcast called Episode One, where like the whole shtick is that each episode is the first episode of a podcast that will never get made. That's a fun idea. Oh, nice. Yeah, it is a fun concept. This is episode 113 of the podcast episode one, just called Joe Biden, and it's three Joe Bidens talking about Joe Biden. And (laughs) normally this is not the kind of shit that I would be into, but it's so fucking stupid and like very good Biden impressions. And it goes on for a fucking hour. I was (laughs) listening to it last night and it was just making me like nearly cry. There are so many good like turns of phrase in here. It's not necessarily political. It's just like, just dumb rambling shit, which is my zone of comedy. So, Well, also, if a podcast that acknowledges the existence of Joe Biden triggers you, I don't know what to fucking say. Half of this thing is my favorite improv thing of just naming ridiculous things that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Fake names, fake names of things, just calling everybody Skippy and Flippy. and. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, recommend it. It's some good background muttering. That reminds me of, there was a book that I read decades ago by a comedian called Dave Gorman in the UK. It was called The You, Dave Gorman. And basically the entire premise of the book is that he's on a bet with a friend that there must be loads of Dave Gormans around. So basically the book is him going around and finding other people called Dave Gorman and talking to them for a bit and (laughs) uh, and taking a photo with them. That's a great idea. All right, moving on. We will mosey right on into our final segment, which is peaches and lemons, which is a combo bitch session and gratitude exercise. So we will each start by sharing a lemon, which is a thing that is kind of a bummer or an annoyance or what have you. And then we will each go around and share peaches, which are good things, exciting things of any scale or magnitude or whatever else. Peaches and lemons. Peaches and lemons. So, boys... Yes. Let's air some petty grievances. I'll do mine real quick first. Whoever owned the phone number I currently have before me apparently was in some debt. And I get very frequent calls for Josie about her going into collections. So I feel very bad for Josie. I don't know what her deal is or was. I've had this phone number for eight years, and I still get daily calls from collections agencies for someone who's not me. And it's like... If you don't have that money by now, guys, you're not getting it. So please just give up. Josie will not be returning your call, and I will not be answering. So (laughs) that's my lemon. Just collections agents, stop calling me if it's not for me. It's just exhausting. It's only so many numbers a human can block, and I'm trying to get to all of them. But (laughs) every day, it's, it's a losing battle. So that's my lemon. When I was a student, I had a friend in one of the halls of residence 
they outsourced the phones to a company, so they used weird numbers that don't look like normal landline numbers in the UK. They look like kind of the sort of phone numbers that you use to kind of get like an automated message about something that you pay through the roof for. Uh-huh. And my friend's number was one digit different from a porno line. Oh, no. And the number of people that kept getting that number wrong. <laughs> it was funny for him at first, but it became very boring very quickly. Yeah, that does sound <laughs> highly entertaining if you opt into it, but not if you are just like trying to live your fucking life. <laughs> yeah. Layden? My lemon is... There is a person who lives in a house on my street that has like a really cool gate that's metal. And I have to walk past that particular home every single day whenever I walk anywhere. And the thing about the people who live there is that they have two extremely large dogs. And the moment anyone comes within like six feet of the property, they immediately start hurling themselves full force at these doors, scratching, oh. barking, to the point where the doors buckle. They'll, like, buckle outwards. Really? Oh, my God. That's horrible. Without fail. Like, I walk maybe several times a day. Every goddamn time. Like, I brace myself for it. And every once in a while, I let my guard down a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it's just like... <laughs> um, and they are so fucking loud. And last night I was walking. I was already in a bad mood. I didn't expect it. And I just immediately went into just like, what the fuck, guys? Every fucking time. You know, I get it. I get having a dog that barks. I don't get letting your dogs fucking destroy themselves against a thing every time anybody walks past. Like, it gets me. I thought this was going to be a surface level lemon, but I'm realizing I have some repressed anger about this issue. (laughs) I hate these people with a passion. Just fucking take care of your dogs, you dumb fucks. We had near us, there was something similar where there was a person who had dogs in their yard. And one day, Rachel was walking past with Audrey and our then dog, Coco. And these dogs got out and chased her down and started attacking Coco. Two very large dogs. And the dude watched this happen and didn't do a fucking thing to stop it. It's always the fucking people. There are so many people in my neighborhood who don't leash their dogs and they wander around and I have a tiny dog and they rush my tiny dog. And I'm like, hey, can you please use a leash? Uh, (laughs) I'm getting a headache thinking about it. And I can't wait to go outside right after we finish this record and walk past that house and just really, I've seen the lady who lives there a couple of times and it's so hard for me to like, I'm so non-confrontational, but (sighs) one day... (laughs) Pete. These are all really good things, and I agree with all of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I can relate to them in my own local area as well. Sorry, I was just going off on a bit of a daydream then about dog shit, which is why I didn't respond straight away, which sounds worse (laughs) than it actually is. But we've got an issue with dog shit in our area. So there's our person, it seems to be one dog who needs to go to the toilet quite a lot, and the owner doesn't pick up after it. But it's clearly incensing somebody else in the area because... You see the dog shit and then like a few hours later or the day after, you see a chalk outline around the dog shit and then an arrow pointing to the circle (laughs) saying, dog shit, please pick this up. Yes. That's potentially the best way I've seen anyone deal with that. (laughs) But the thing is, like somebody does eventually pick it up and then you're still left with the chalk because you can't get rid of the chalk until it rains off. So... (laughs) Uh, There's the random, weird, passive-aggressive graffiti all over the floor everywhere. (laughs) The UK really excels at passive aggression in a way that would put my Midwestern relatives to shame. And I thought that was the height (laughs) of 
passive aggression, but there's something really delightful and unique about the kind of passive aggressive behavior that British people engage in, which it's something you don't get the same flavor of here in the US. All right, sorry, continue. So I was going to say my lemon's email. I am so fed up with email. They're mostly like academic emails, but you do get like the odd thing from journalists and TV companies and stuff, like people asking me to do something for them because it'd be good for my exposure. Oh. The academic books thing is the worst. I've had like three or four emails recently from academic publishers asking me if, you know, you're an expert in video games. Can you write a chapter on violent video games and aggression for us for this upcoming tome? For free. Yeah. So it's not that. It's the good news is we won't charge you for it this time. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> That's worse. Jesus. I always go back with like, okay, my fee is 10K for this. And they always say no. And I know it's ludicrously high, but I always try and gauge these things of, you know, I would do this, but for how much money? Like, how much money have you got to give me to get out of bed? And 10K seems to be my thing. And no, no, nobody's bitten yet, which is entirely predictable. <laughs> <laughs> but then you get, like, really arsy emails from them back. I've gotten those as well. I remember when I was an academic, and occasionally they still roll in because people don't check, getting these, hey, do you want to write a book on whatever, supersymmetry or something I knew about. It never occurred to me what the scam was. There's a chance I might have even read something you tweeted about it, Pete. But the scam is that they get these academics to do free slash really low-paying labor to write books, and then they sell them to universities who kind of uncritically buy them for exorbitant fees. <laughs> And then no one ever reads them because, you know, it's some rando book a lot of the time because most of the people who agree to this don't have a lot of other stuff going on. Like the most high-profile people in the field are not going to write a book for next to nothing. So they get a bunch of kind of lower tier, not by uh, intelligence or research quality, but maybe on the whatever you want to call it, academics, maybe some less well-known academics to do this work for free. And then they make bank on it when they sell it to universities. And it's fucking evil. Yeah, that's nightmarish. That's how publishing papers works, right? So if I, run, if I run a study and write it off a publication, I submit it to a journal, and things are changing a little bit, but, you know, so the violent video game paper is talking about, when we submitted it to the journal, I think the initial charge was something like $1,800 for us to submit it. Oh, my God. That's crazy. So, you know, it gets accepted and you paid the publication fee. And then it's published in a journal. So this, this one wasn't because this was an open access journal, but, you know, there are other journals where... Your paper's then published, and then your university has to buy a subscription to that journal in order to get access to the work that you've done and provided to them for free. Yep. Academic publishing's got like a higher profit margin than like Apple, I think. Yeah. It's ridiculous. In theoretical physics, the way people got around this was the only thing that people ever really cared about was preprints. Yeah. People published in journals too, but only reluctantly, and there were a bunch of online-only journals that were reputable and not super expensive. And occasionally you'd get a paper in a high-profile journal. Like Nature or Science never really published theoretical particle physics stuff anyway. So the super high-profile stuff was off the table. So it was 100% preprints. And I remember one time I got a paper, I wrote a short like letter-style paper, like a three-pager, and put it in Physical Review Letters, which is a prestigious journal for short papers. And I didn't realize there was such a thing as a printing fee. <laughs> I'd been a postdoc for like six years or something at this point. And I was like, what? You have to pay to publish? Ugh, whatever. And I got the institution I was at to pay for the fee, but 
I couldn't believe that was a thing. And it's so not how most of academic publishing works. It's very rarely that an art school dropout gets to feel a sense of accomplishment or superiority. I'm just saying, this sounds like hell. Yeah, I know that my end of industry is hell, but as an outsider, this sounds terrible. It really sucks, yeah. Yeah. Academics is all about exploiting very cheap labor. Anyway, we should move on to peaches because I don't want to keep you too much longer, Pete. <laughs> Sick. Everybody, welcome. Peaches part. We all named three good things. Yeah. Fellas? Yeah, I got a couple. One is Audrey's School Today, as part of their language section, did a little kind of online game show where they kids all had to count the number of syllables in words. And they were divided into two teams. And Audrey's team lost. And she was so mad at her classmates for not getting the number of syllables right that it was one of the most relatable feelings I've seen her have in a long time. It was kind of sad because she was actually in tears at the end because her team did not win. I mean, she was like big blobby sobbing tears. But I feel like if there's one emotion that everybody's been feeling, especially, you know, science-minded people for the last year, it's the, come on, you idiots, why can't you get this fucking simple thing right (laughs) attitude? (laughs) And that's 100% what she was feeling today. And it was, I don't want to engage in too much schadenfreude, but it was kind of cute slash sad slash funny to watch a six-year-old get very upset with the exact same feeling that I've been having for a year or more now over something completely inconsequential. So, Oh, Audrey, remember this feeling because you will continue to feel it (laughs) the rest of your natural life. Yeah, as things start to matter more and more. First time's always special, though. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Number two, our very dear friend Brent had a birthday yesterday. And he came over for a little backyard hangout at night, and it was lovely to see him. Shit, it was his birthday? (laughs) Ah, whatever. Send him a text now. Fuck! He's one of the best people I I know. He's a dear friend. And we had a lovely little outdoor hangout, and that was it. That's the first hangout we've done with anybody for like almost three months now because of the crazy COVID numbers, which are now on the wane here. And number three, uh, we're going vegetarian this week, me and my little family. And we're trying it out. See how it goes. We're still eating eggs and fish, but we've been wanting to do a vegetarian week for a while. So we just said, why the fuck not? Let's just do it. And I often skirt with the idea of becoming a vegetarian just for environmental reasons. Of course. Feels like it's the kind of thing I should be doing. I haven't quite pulled the trigger on it yet. I don't know if I ever will, but it's a start. Obviously, everyone is feeling free to make their own moral decisions about what is and is not right for them. But I'm happy we're trying it this week, and we'll see where it goes. Lovely. All right. uh, Who wants to go next? Short ones. Peach number one. We recorded like two episodes last week, and it's only been a couple of days since the last one, so scrambling. Like I sit in the same spot eight hours a day, every day. But I've been playing bass for an hour every morning, and I've been like studying music theory stuff, and I have like the little hand exerciser, and I, I feel some improvement, which is exciting. You know, music... Hooray. My second peach is something that Brian just told me I can't say. So (laughs) (laughs) it's cool and fun and brought me a lot of joy. And I guess we'll soon bring you joy, question mark. It is a creative project that I have started, and I think people are going to like it. And that's all I want to say about it. I also think people are really going to like it. It slaps. And my third peach is the music video for um, La Tigre Decepticon which is just real classic if you haven't seen it. Just a couple of dudes bouncing around. 
It's a bop. Those are my three peaches. Those are, these are maybe my three least interesting peaches I've ever done, but they're great. All right, moving on, Pete. So yeah, my three peaches are. I recently basically binge watched the Ducktales reboot on Disney Plus. Oh yeah, which was surprisingly joyous. I watched Ducktales when I was a kid. I, you know, I wouldn't say it was like my favorite thing, but they've done such a good job of of the reboot, and you know, it's sort of continuing that theme of catching up with things two years after they come out. So it's, you know, they're on season three now, I think. But they very clearly aimed it at people like me, who are sort of like in their mid-30s, watch the originals, super nerds. So there's all sorts of like nice little Easter eggs in there. But my favourite Easter egg is there's an entire story around Della Duck, who's Donald Duck's sister and a triplet's mum. And she basically flew a rocket to the moon 10 years ago and crash landed on it and she's been stuck ever since. So there's like one episode where it's like this kind of cutscene montage of her rebuilding her rocket to get back. And they do it to this really cool song. And if you listen carefully, it turns out that it's the moon level theme song from the DuckTales Game Boy game from like 1991. Really? Yeah. Aww. And they've like done like a full orchestral version of it. And it's brilliant. I love it. Do you remember... From the original DuckTales, for I don't. This is one of these rando things from when I was a kid that has stuck with me. Their Macbeth parody called McDuck. I mean, that's so obvious, but I don't know why I never got that. <laughs> so they basically did some version of Macbeth, and I just remember, and that was the tale of old McDuck who cheated and lied and ran amok. <laughs> why that has stayed with me for, I mean, this has to be thirty years now. Like I was probably younger than 15 when I saw it, so it's probably more than 30 years. For some reason, this has just stayed with me forever. Anyway, moving on. Peach number two. Peach number two is watching MC Hammer break out as one of the go-to science slash philosophy communicators of 2021. Who thought that would happen? But it's brilliant. I know. I love it. What? Yeah, he's sort of like become this like massive philosopher and he's like defending science communication and coming out with some like really really eloquent ways of explaining why evidence is important and stuff like that on Twitter at the minute. Yes. It's great. Yeah. That's awesome. I had no idea this dude was interested in science at all. And in the last, I'd say, two or three months, it's like all he tweets about now. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really wonderful. It's brilliant. My favorite thing that happened over the past week was that I tweeted some approval for it and he followed me on Twitter. Oh, no way. I had to go and lie down for about 10 minutes after that happened. I had an out-of-body experience. I love it. (laughs) So that's made me happy. And the third thing is, so I'm trying to write this book at the minute and I like listening to music when I write. I've really got into lo-fi video game beats at the minute. There's this like whole subgenre of people who've like remixed video game songs and just like turn them into really nice lo-fi chill out beats and there's one that i'm listening to repeat at the minute which is this like really nice sort of piano version of the file select theme from super mario 64 oh wow (laughs) i'll send you the link if you want it's just it's beautiful yes please do you ever listen to any of the uh silent hill lo-fi hip-hop or vaporwave stuff because those are in my rotation pretty heavily yeah, I've got to kind of chop and change stuff out quite a lot because I kind of do this thing where I listen to one song on repeat to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I get really, really sick of it. So I have to have a lot of songs in the repertoire to stop that from happening. But yeah, I set up a list there so you can, you can have a look at it. Oh, wonderful. So it's not got many on it at the minute because I deleted a lot recently because I got bored of them. But File Select, I think, is number two. And it's nice. I love it. Pete, thank you so much for taking all this time, eight hours ahead of us, to be with us today. It's been a long time since we've actually spoken voice. 
And it's great to talk to you again. Yeah. It's been really nice to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. And where can people find you online or find your book or support your things to plug? I'm asking for things to plug. One thing that I should say, actually, is so I'm running a study on loot boxes at the minute. So if you play video games that have got loot boxes in them and you're over 18, um, please do my study. I can't remember how you get to it now at all because my mind's just gone blank. Uh, <laughs> you can send us a link. When we post the episode, we'll post it. Yeah, I'll send you a link. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Etchells. My book's called Lost in a Good Game, and you can find that anywhere, basically. It's a fantastic book. I really, really loved it. I think... So much of our audience, you know, is into gaming and mental health and all the stuff that the book is about. Plus, it's just a fun read. So I want everybody to go read it because I loved it. And I'm reasonably convinced anyone who has gotten this far into the podcast, just generally listens to this podcast, will like it as well. Thank you. Yeah. There we go. All right. Now, Leighton, it's time for you to do your thing. Yeah, it is time for me to do my thing. Hey, everybody. It's Leighton here, in case you didn't notice. This is the end of this episode, and as always... Hold on just a second. This is the part, which is now a tradition, where I apologize to our guest for what you're about to say. <laughs> At the end of every episode, Layden has this thing that she says, which sometimes is appropriate for the episode and sometimes is not. And sometimes episodes, there is a little bit more sex talk in them. We never get super explicit, but it happens sometimes. This episode had basically none. Yet, this thing is still going to happen. So, Pete, I want to apologize to you, not on behalf of Layton. She can feel whatever she feels about this, but I'm going to apologize to you for what is about to be said. <laughs> Apology pre-accepted. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> Brian Wecht. Yes. I just got to applaud you for your iteration on the bit. I don't do bits. I feel feelings and act on those feelings, but I don't do bits. So, Everyone listening... I care for you. I hope you're well. Brian, go fuck yourself. Everyone else, stay safe. Come hard. That's the end of the episode. Goodbye. Bye. There's nothing to be ashamed about, Brian. <laughs> Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. <laughs>